Uh, grief is about the loss of things. So it, it, most often we talk about death, but grief is present with all kinds of losses. For instance, the loss of routine, the loss of schedule, the loss of being able to go to work, uh, loss of finances, stability, security, um, the loss of human connections. We are living in strange times. And not only are the circumstances around us causing a sense of uncertainty, but the feelings inside of us as well. Probably because we just haven't experienced anything like this before. And maybe we just haven't had feelings like this before. You know, we've observed them in characters on TV shows like The Walking Dead, but elements of those fictions feel more true than anything we've experienced to date. Today, we're going to have a conversation with David Kennedy. And David works with, with individuals who are living in the thin spaces of life, who have come to grips with their mortality, not by a choice of theirs, but because of circumstances. And they know what it is to live in uncertainty and find life there. So we need to talk to David Kennedy. We need to tap into all that he's learned from these beautiful humans who've got so much to teach us. Welcome to another episode of the Perishable Podcast. Uh, today, I've got a good friend of mine who I have so much respect for on a normal day, but in current circumstances, I just can't imagine um, what a, what life is like in the day of David Kennedy. So I thought there's no one better I'd like to talk to about some of these big, big topics. David, welcome to the Perishable Podcast. Um, why don't you introduce yourself, introduce yourself and um, explain a little bit about what your role is in Hospice Peterborough. Thank you, Aaron. And uh, it's my privilege to be here with you. And I just love uh, the chance to banter this about uh, it's certainly incredible times, that's for sure. So my role at Hospice is the supportive care counselor for the palliative community care team. And what that looks like is that there is a supportive um, care program that was set up a number of years ago uh, by the LIN, the Local Health in, uh, Integrated Network, uh, which now is changed. Um, however, the idea is to, is to create the supports that are necessary to support people who choose to die or to stay at home in the community as long as possible. So part of that role is, as we know, dying is not just a medical problem. Uh, it very much involves the whole person. And so my role as a supportive care counselor is to work with the team in addressing the needs of people, uh, both who are dying and palliative, as well as the family and significant other people involved in that process. So we work with people in the community, and then, of course, we have this incredible place of hospice where we have 10 um, beds that are there, and I work with individuals and families in that context, too. So it's a, it's a broad context. I love what I do, and uh, there's no question, though, that this has introduced some real challenges into how people are coping with this last piece of their life. You're, you're speaking of COVID-19 specifically. Yes. Yeah. How has that changed the way you normally work? Well, I think for, in, in a very practical terms, it means that I'm not able to 
see people face to face, which is what I would normally be doing in the community. Um, so most of my contact, all of my contact there is by phone, which which is great that at least we can make that contact. But it it really is difficult to convey the physical pieces of of this, which are so important. Um, the other the other piece that it it brings up in families is the difficulty around obstacles to what they had planned for or hoped for as this. Uh, time progresses. I'll give you an example, Aaron. I talked to uh, one of my clients the other day, and uh, they were diagnosed just not too long ago, but with a very aggressive form of cancer, which means their life uh, expectancy isn't going to be that long, a matter of uh, months probably rather than years. And this person, after we were talking, said to me, you know, you can talk about time after this pandemic is over and what you're going to do and how you're going to live and what you're going to enjoy. But for me, there is no time after. And, And it really struck me with how they feel that whatever time they have left is being taken from them in the way in which they would like to at least experience that. So that's just one way that that happens. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you don't think of that, you know? No. Yeah, we think no. in terms of when this is over, I can't wait. Right. But yeah. Right. What are, um, what could palliative care, the work you do, teach those of us who aren't um, in palliative? What, what, what do you think they could teach us about living in the present like we are right now without just, you know, thinking about the future like we are? Because that's not mm-hmm. something that they have the mm-hmm. gift of. Right. What are a couple of things you right. think that they could teach us? Well, I, I, there's no question. And what this has done to me, and I always tell people, this work has done for me than, what, than anything that I could contribute to others. But what it has certainly brought out, and I see it in all of uh, the people I work with, is a that we need to be realistic about how we think we have control of life. Mm. I think that uh, we live in a world where, and that's part of the anxiety around this this pandemic, is that people want a fix. So get this fix so we can live differently. Right. When, when the reality is that we don't have the control that we think we do, and rather than try to think we have control, why don't we engage the reality of, Life is vulnerable. There's no question about it. That doesn't mean we have to be living in fear, but it does mean a realistic understanding of I'm part of this universe. I'm part of this world. And and this world has an operating uh, sense that sometimes is bigger than what I'm able to control. So what's my role? How do I live when what I thought I was controlling possible, but I still have life. So how do I choose to live? What is it that I choose to focus on when I can't control things? And I find that, you know, with people um, who have limited life expectancy, that they, just as you say, they they lose very quickly that long-term, except in grief. They grieve over what they're not going to experience. But they they then find a heightened meaning in the experiences that they are having right in this moment. 
So relationships, uh, things that are meaningful that, that maybe we trivialized before, suddenly we, we have to stop and value and see what they contribute to our life in a very positive way. Hmm. It sounds like you're saying that that those who uh, it kind of are confronted with their mortality, they've already kind of grieved that mm-hmm. they don't have the future to think about. Yeah. And that's prepared them to live in the present even more. Is that what I hear you saying kind of thing? That's exactly that's exactly it. You know, when we <laughs> I used to think of procrastination as, you know, putting off things that I could do today to tomorrow. But the real problem with procrastination is we always think we have a tomorrow. (laughs) And I think for people who have that life-limiting reality check, they understand that it's it's not about knowing I have a tomorrow. It's about how do I choose to live today? Right. Yeah. It, you know, without it sounding cliche, it always does come back to us trying to figure out how to be present but I think we just have to find a new language to talk about that because mm-hmm. we've just over-talked it. But yeah. now, in lieu of COVID-19, li- living in this world pandemic, it mm-hmm. it makes us need to re-examine old concepts. Um, I read this great quote by a guy, Thomas Zimmer. This is what he said. He described trying to experience this pandemic. He said, the weirdest part of living through the COVID-19 pandemic is this strange mixture of normalcy and emergency that we're all experiencing. I constantly feel like I'm either over or underreacting, or really both at the same time. And it's surreal. Yeah, great quote. I read that and I thought that really does sum up yeah. kind of this sense that when I talk to people, they just keep saying to me, strange times, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how to feel. I, I'm driving down, you know, the main street of our town. And it's just I keep reminding myself that we're living in, you know, what feels like the walking dead <laughs> because, yeah. they, you know, yeah. they, they just haven't yet been able to mm-hmm. um, kind of um, come to grips with this reality. And mm-hmm. um, I think you just touched on something that, that I think maybe would be a key to help. And it's the idea and, and learning this from those who've kind of had to embrace the mortality, just the idea of grieving. Maybe, mm-hmm. that's, maybe that's why we're stuck in this sense well, of, I don't know how to feel. It's, it, right. what would you, how, how would you speak to that idea that maybe those of us yeah. who haven't embraced our mortality, there, there's something for us to grieve here? Well, and and I think you're absolutely right. There's actually a lot of grief that's involved in this that that gets what we call disenfranchised, or in other words, it doesn't get validated. And I think it's so important to be be honest about what we are experiencing in our feelings and to name them. For instance, uh, grief is about the loss of things. So most often we talk about death, but grief is present with all kinds of losses. For instance, the loss of routine, the loss of schedule, the loss of being able to go to work, uh, loss of finances, stability, security, um, the loss of human connections. Mm -hmm. And and there's, there's, there's hundreds of losses that we are experiencing that we that, that were done to us, not that we chose these. And, and I think that the danger, as you've, as you've pointed out, the danger is that we don't pay attention to this. Mm. I, <clears throat> I think one of the things that's it's kind of been interesting to me, I've watched uh, people who, who want to try to 
explain why we're in this. And I, you know, I see that uh, from all kinds of different perspectives. Uh, you know, God's trying to teach us something or something's trying to do this or that. And I, I think we distract ourselves to trying to find out, you know, what, some reason behind this. When in fact, I think uh, to me, I, it's not about that. It's about what is this inviting us to? Mm. And I think this is an invitation that that could begin with acknowledging the losses that we have and why those are important to us. Uh, sometimes we grieve things that as we examine them, we say, you know, I realize I'm missing that, but maybe that wasn't so important in my life hmm. the way I thought it was. And so grief obviously gives us a chance to explore that loss and to and to put it into perspective in life. But my fear is that for some people, this is kind of like, okay, I don't want to acknowledge anything. Let's just get this over with. Or you know, let's push this and get back to what we want to be so I don't have to deal with the grief that I'm feeling. Right. Um, when grief, yeah, grief's an invitation. Yeah. And those are the people that say, I just want to get back to normal. But the truth exactly. is there's there's no yeah. normal. Yeah, there is no normal. Right? As one of my clients used to say, the only, the only normal is the setting on your dryer. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so... For, for those who are, who are feeling in this ambivalent sense of, I just don't know how to feel, are you saying mm -hmm. that to actually name the things that they're probably mm -hmm. grieving might be a healthy exercise right. in, terms of, in terms of them getting past mm -hmm. this impasse? And, and mm -hmm. David, David Kessler, who wrote, he said, if, if we don't name it, we can't feel it. And if we don't feel it, we can't heal it. Ooh, like and it, there's a sense where, you know, we need to be honest with what we are experiencing. And it's different for everybody. Some people, you know, some people don't have a, a huge problem with <laughs> with isolation. Mm -hmm. um, for other people, it's huge. And so it's not like everybody has the same issues of grief. But it's important for us to be honest with ourselves because that, that actually teaches us about who we are and, mm -hmm. and again can be a very helpful piece in this mm -hmm. yeah I agree I love that um, just hearing you talk about those that you've heard speaking of you know trying to blame this on someone or find a meaning behind it or a reason for mm -hmm. why this is happening mm -hmm. I've experienced the same thing with some of the individuals that I've been in contact with and heard the same you know uh, language that you know, this is all happening for a reason, and and right, yeah. and I struggle with that as much as you do. Um, even coming from strictly a, a faith perspective, because we just love to blame God for everything. That you know, mm -hmm. um, right? And of course, the individuals that are really struggling when they are given that that pat answer that oh, everything's happening for a reason. You know, they want to know the reason. Well, who doesn't? I want to know the reason too. Right. To me, I right. found I found a better way of dealing with it. Is I say, listen. Um, I don't really think everything happens for a reason. I think everything happens. And these are opportunities right. for us to give them a reason to actually right. attach meaning. To me, that's what the life of faith does, is it right. says, you know what, this is a pretty bad situation. I, I need to find meaning in it as opposed to, right. or create meaning in it, as right. opposed to sitting around yeah. waiting for it to right. appear. We yeah. say, how can I make this meaningful for me? Right, right. You and, know? and what is exactly and and I think that's that's absolutely true, Aaron, that I think the bigger the better question is what do 
what do I discover about life and about myself and where I stand in life as a result of what I'm experiencing? And that's far more fruitful in terms of where we go mm-hmm. than trying to find a reason so that we can dismiss it. And that's what reasons do. And that's a normal piece of grief, by the way, that that when people experience death, there, there is this piece around trying to find out why it happened, why me, why now. And and I again, I say to people in grief, it, it's okay to ask those questions because it's no good for me to tell you not to. Um, but just understand that when you're finished asking them, then we're ready to do the work we need to do. Right. Yes. Because we're not that the answer to those is not going to fix what we're feeling. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, many have said it before, the the idea of the why questions are difficult because the answers don't satisfy anyways. You know, exactly. Um, no, that's and, true. But you're right. Sometimes we just we need to voice them. I like Eugene Peterson says it this way. I think he says we have to voice them to get to the end of our words. You know, mm-hmm. just to, to yeah. get to get it out. Yeah. Otherwise, it just stays in our heads. These unasked right. questions. If we can just right. get to the end of our words, yeah. it's been said. Then maybe mm-hmm. we can move on then to a better question, mm-hmm. one right. one that you know has movement or right. something. And maybe we should be looking for that instead of words. So, you know, normal. I mean, normal grief um, brings about feelings of you know exhaustion and confusion and and being emotionally overwhelmed and. And, and so I think rather than trying to look for words, maybe we should we should experience those feelings which should lead us to, okay, so what's going on with me and what is this and naming it hmm. and then being able to do something with it. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. That's really good. Very good. I find um, just listening to you talk about how, you know, those of us who don't necessarily have an expiry date, so to speak, we're mm-hmm. not dealing with something that is infringing on our mortality, but yet mm-hmm. this experience with COVID-19 and how certain things have been, uh, are no longer accessible to us, certain abilities to dream about the future. Cause none of us know, we don't know when this is going to end. We don't know. Some people right. don't know if they have a job when it's over. We just, there's so much we don't right. know. And it's really right. kind of leveled, leveled the human experience here for those of us mm-hmm. who aren't experiencing a, a palliative existence with those who are. I know it's not the same at all, and I'm not trying to um, say they're equal, but, but I think in some ways, it. I hope this opportunity allows us mm-hmm. to know how some must feel without mm-hmm. a certainty moving forward. Because like you say, none of us have that certainty. No. And that's and I think you're right. It's not a comparison, but it's a validation of what I have. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, one of the, the other things that I've observed, uh, Aaron, is that a normal part of grief. So somebody who had a family member die, let's say a normal part of grief is this heightened um, uh, fear of other people dying in their families or people they're connected to. So if you have. If you have one parent die, uh, it's the normal piece of grief is that you become very anxious about the other parent dying. That's normal. But what this COVID-19 has done is has brought that fear of other people dying to a heightened level because it's introduced a possibility that that wasn't necessarily there before. 
a parent who had a child die and they have other children, I, you know, we will talk about how are heightened more, more afraid now because they've experienced one, they know what can happen. But then we talk about, well, okay, but, but let's, let's not, let's focus on the realities. What are the, you know, that the, let's bring it down to the, the, the reality of life that everything is possible, but it may not be, you know, something we need to be afraid of the way we are at the moment. But now when we have this pandemic, people can say, well, I should be afraid and I need to be afraid because anybody can get this disease out of nowhere. So what it's done to all of the normal pieces of grief is added a layer that has heightened things such as the fear of other people dying mm-hmm. in our life that that we have to be aware of and be aware of that fear. Yeah, well, that's that's good. You know, because we're experiencing a, a, this disease that is really no respecter of persons, although it's it's harsher on those, obviously, who um, are struggling um, with respiratory issues, et cetera. But we're seeing all over the world um, children, young people, healthy, mm-hmm. young adults. It is one of those mm-hmm. things. So I can see why that fear becomes something that strikes all of us. Mm-hmm. Ab- absolutely. And mm-hmm. there's a... There is a, a movement within faith communities, especially that, that want to talk about how we don't have to have fear, you know, we shouldn't be afraid. And, you know, that's a very troubling thing because fear is a real emotion and we need to feel these things. And Elizabeth Gilbert said it wonderfully. She said, um, she said it this way. She said that um, fear, we need to let fear in the car. Mm-hmm. We just don't need to let it drive. Right. And, right. and I, I think yeah. like what you've said, it's a real emotion. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we need to feel it. And, and for mm-hmm. some people, maybe maybe the challenge is just don't feel it alone. <laughs> you know, if you're going to go right. to those depths, right. make sure there's someone that can help feel those with you. But right. Brene Brown tells us that if we try and numb one emotion, we've numbed them all. Right. So we need to feel fear, but just not let it drive, as Elizabeth would say. Yeah, and that's a that's a very good way of putting it. Thomas Beckett also, you know, in his his classic work on the denial of death, he talks about we need to have a healthy fear of de- death. That's what keeps us from stepping out on the curb without looking. It keeps us mm-hmm. from doing things that. But um, that's a healthy fear of death, which helps us to live well. But when fear of death, when the fear of what might happen. Uh, doesn't allow us to experience life in a healthy way. That's where we have the problem. So, and again, that's so when we talk about how we deal with this, I think, you know, getting getting honest information without being overwhelmed. And, right. you know, this, this social media is such a dual-edged sword because it has given, it's, uh, you know, I talked to one client this morning, for instance, and uh, we were, we were, she was telling me how, um, you know, back in <clears throat> when she was in in California in the '70s, early '70s, and she experienced a huge um, uh, experience that that forced her into into isolation. That there was no communication, there was no cell phone, there was no video, there was no uh, connector. Whereas now she has those connections, so there's good side to that. But the downside is the amount of information that 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 nobody knows if it's true or not right. is 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 grabbed to now if i go to information looking for what i want right 
then then we're creating this, um, you know, if I just want something to stop my fear, uh, you know, how do I know that it's true? Mm-hmm. So, you know, feeding that is, is and getting what we need to know without getting what what overwhelms us is one of the challenges in all of this. Right. And and, and people who are who are looking at the news 24 seven are just that's an invitation to um, to real trauma yeah um and the, the other I thing did. too is i think that it's a moving target so the oh, news we saw totally. last week about <laughs> exactly any level of this pandemic is different this yeah. week yeah the exactly. numbers change the cure right you know rates everything changes and it's like okay let's just hold this a little looser so let's stay in the moment right, right. <laughs> let's stay in today here's what we know today yeah and that's so when i work with people in palliative it's about okay I don't if I if I spend my time thinking about what's down the road, I'll be frozen and won't be able to embrace the gift of what I have in the moment. So staying in the moment is that's going to be different tomorrow. But what am I doing today? I I think the other and if I can just say this too, Aaron, that when I when I work with people in grief um, and, and my my background and my, my my natural approach to thing is narrative. So I usually think of it in we're we're living with two stories. We're living with the story of and when I talk about death, somebody comes to see me because somebody's died. I'm living with first of all the story of that death. What happened, how it happened, what went wrong, what traumatized them, everything about the death. That's the one story. And that's the one that consumes people. The other story that I need to remind them of is the story of the meaningful connections that they have with that person. So whether that's memories, um, that's done through pictures, it's done through story, it's talking about their connection in who they were. And I think what we have now is that we're living with, with this massive story in our face about death and COVID-19 and all of the fear around that. Mm -hmm. And we need to acknowledge that, but let's not lose the other stories of meaningful connections in our life, of things that bring us joy, of things that contribute. Um, And I think for many people, this, this, the first story of what's happening is really traumatizing. And we're, I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of trauma mixed in with this. Um, and it's traumatizing because people can't be with people when they die. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had I had one situation of a death where, um, you know, mom died in the hospital. The boys were in the parking lot in the car and watching on Facebook. Um, so wow. even that trauma of I can't even die like I had hoped to die uh, gets gets in the way of this piece. So that story for most of us is right in our face. But I would encourage you, there's another story that we have to embrace as well. The stories of connections, of meaning, of memory, the stories of life. And I guess that's where I really encourage people to, to bring that tension. And, and you, you alluded to it earlier. It's not about, as Brene Brown says, numbing one, because if you do that, you numb them all. It's about holding those stories 
intention with each other. It's not balance either. They don't balance. Yeah. But there's tension there. And that never forget that story. And when we become consumed with one at the expense of the other, that we have that trouble. And is it fair to say that the, the one story, the story of connection, is one that we actually have some control over? Exactly. Because we have, you, you know, nailed it. You nailed yeah. it. Yeah, that's exactly it. We do have control over that. And that's where we need to find our grounding and our, our sense of being in that one. So, um, you know, being really pragmatic then for those who are listening, they would say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of numb. I just don't know. I don't feel in control of anything right now, which is most of us. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> probably the best advice for us was to kind of transcend the story that is happening in culture, the one that we're not in control of, a pandemic, right. and take advantage of the story we can control, which is what are the connections we're making? Or if, you know, what are the connections we can make? Or um, or what can I do? What can, what, I, do? What yeah. can I What can I contribute? What, what can I participate in? Um, yeah, those yeah. are the stories we control. And, and, you know, we all need to have some sense of control. But the, the challenge of trying to control what is uncontrollable leads us to incredible anxiety and, uh, and, and real dangerous living. Yeah. And I think it leads to, I think psychologists call it psychic numbing when we get so yeah. overwhelmed by the... Um, the, the sheer amount of things that we've discovered we cannot control. We don't do anything. We don't even focus on what we can control anymore. We find ourselves just surviving. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Whereas if we can kind of step out of that mode and just begin to do something, you know, mm-hmm. I, remember, I remember telling someone one time um, this notion that they were struggling because life, there, there wasn't a lot of options. They felt completely out of control to the point where they were just paralyzed. They just couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And so, they were just wasting away. And it was like, you know what? Find what you can. Get up, learn to bake bread, clean the mm-hmm. house, wash the dishes, go for a walk. Yeah. These are things you can right. do. And it's right. movement, any movement, physical right. movement, right. you know, right. bodily movement takes you from this headspace at least to the next headspace, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is movement. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And actually, one of the uh, that's a great thing in grief. We use it. Our uh, our our bereavement uh, coordinator, Sheila, she's wonderful. She has her specialty is in kids grief, but she does a lot of body movement work with kids dancing and and it's grief related. And I think we as adults could learn to be to, to allow our bodies to express our grief at times. For some people, that could be very helpful. For some people, it's going to be writing. For some people, it's going to be physical art. Or uh, other people, it's going to be cleaning the house. Or as you pointed out, find what works for you that, that again, gives you the control of I have, this is life. This is what I can do. This is how I experience it in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And the simpler, the probably probably the better it, it will be. Oh, exactly. If it exactly. just means gardening yeah. or something, right. just right. you know, yeah. um, and not as a distraction, but as actual physical something you can actually accomplish that at the end you will feel good about. And that's true. And actually, distraction isn't all bad either. We all need that. And I and that's one of the other pieces in grief that this pandemic has challenged is that. People in grief find they find their normal distractions that allow them not to have to 
just be consumed with something. So for many people, it might be getting out, going for a walk or having coffee with somebody or or doing something that distracts them. But now with this self-isolation, even those healthy distractions uh, are taken away so that people are forced to sit with their thoughts uh, 24-7. And that's that can be overwhelming. So again, what I will work with people is, okay, you're isolated. That doesn't mean you have to sit with one thought 24 hours. How do we how do we find meaningful distractions that allow us uh, to be more than just distractions? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, the way it works with me is those distractions actually end up changing my perspective. So yes. how I feel about COVID-19 and the latest numbers before lunch um, – will probably feel a little bit different after I've gone outside, raked the leaves or walk the dog, right. come back in, exactly. fed my family. And then I realize, wow, I, I feel a little bit different. What has changed? Well, somehow my perspective has changed simply because mm-hmm. I've gone outside mm-hmm. or I've, mm-hmm. I've created something in a time right. when it feels like we're powerless, yet I had the power to feed my family or walk right. the dog, you know? Yeah. Think, no, you're absolutely you know, right. And that's that's true. And I think that the key to that is what you you and I have been talking about. The key is if I look at my possibilities based on what it used to be, then then I'll be frozen. I need to look at what are my possibilities given today rather than saying I can't go and do this. I need to look at say, OK, so what is it that I can do? And sometimes we get so focused. It's the old story, and you know this. You were a pastor. <laughs> you hear one negative comment, and you can hear a hundred positive about your sermon or whatever. Right. But if that one negative one sticks in there, right? Yeah. So we get so consumed with what we can't do that we used to do, or we can't do it the way we used to do it, that we give up and miss what we can do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rabbi uh, Harold Kushner has this, this mm-hmm. great, um, I'm going to butcher it, but he, uh, he talks about the empty spaces in our life that we experience mm-hmm. because of, of failures or um, I think he says dreams that don't come true, people who yes. were once yeah. there but are gone. And he, he yeah. talks about maybe the purpose of those empty spaces isn't to frustrate us or to, I think he says, brand us a loser, but maybe the empty spaces are there to give us room to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, a room to experience what we haven't yet experienced, you know? And he's not saying those things happen to us t- for that reason. He's saying these things happen. This is life. He knows he lost right. his son at a very young yeah. age, you know, bad, bad things happen to good people. But, yeah. but it's the notion that um, what if we took advantage of these spaces of loss uh, and we allowed something to grow there? And, and, and that's, I love that because, and that's part of the Jewish uh, context, and I remember having this discussion um, with a, uh, a fellow who teaches in uh, rabbinical studies, and he said, um, "If you if you count the letters in the Torah, the, the the letters, the Hebrew letters, you come up with a number, and I, I I have it somewhere. I don't have it with me now, but he said if you ask a rabbi how many letters are in the Torah." it would be a totally different number, so much more. And he said the reason for that is because 
we count the spaces, the white spaces between letters as in as part of the number. So in other words, he says those white spaces are where life happens. The letters represent those marks at which we respond to it. But the 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 real stuff of life is what goes on in the white spaces. And I, and um and that's what Kushner's referring to is that these spaces in life are the things we need to pay attention to because they're that's the catalyst for for how we act. I think, you know, as a Christian, Jesus said that too, that you know, that 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 our responses to life are a flow out of who we are on the inside. And every spirituality has that sense of life is expressed out of a well of who we are. And so those white spaces, and I think this time, that's why I like to think about it as an invitation to be spend time there, mm-hmm. to sit down with myself, mm-hmm. to, to, to ask myself how I'm feeling, to, to not be ashamed of those of those experiences of fear or of doubt or of anxiety, but to name them and then find a way to ritualize that. Yeah. And I think that's the, the other side of it. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, so I'm sitting in my office and uh, beside me is an easel. My daughter's an artist and she's drawing. And mm. for her, the white space is the canvas. Yep. Right. She draws That's on it. the canvas and the white space yep. is actually the most important part because it's it's the mm-hmm. piece. It's the receptive yep. piece that everything else happens on. Yeah. Yep. And in that way, we could look at COVID-19 right now. This is the white space. Absolutely. And the choices we make, the connections we notice, um, what we allow this to do in us is just merely painting on the canvas that is life. And life is yep. about suffering and joy and grief and mourning and hope and despair all of it and, it's all uh, there isn't yeah, it yeah it is because that's it's, that's it's all there that's life so um this past weekend um we had a huge tragedy in canada here we had this horrific shooting out east in eastern canada and it was it was terrible and it was d- difficult to process and it was one of those things that mm-hmm. not only are we glued to the TVs to figure out what's going on with COVID-19 but we're in Canada glued to the TVs to see this largest mass shooting um, mm-hmm. or second largest mass shooting in our history and we're watching this unfold mm-hmm. and I couldn't help but think that I don't know if we have any capacity left to deal with mm-hmm. that because mm-hmm. we're already um, maxed out in terms of dealing with our grieving of COVID-19, our displacement, mm-hmm. the disruption that this caused. And so my fear is that a lot of people aren't doing anything about that news because they just don't know what to do with it. No, that's that's true, Aaron. It's just it, in some ways it's unthinkable that this could happen, uh, you know, in, in at home. And, and uh, I just uh, it's overwhelming. And for most of us, we just simply sit in shock and try to understand. Um, and again, I think there's a number of things that are important to to put into place here. I mean, there's grief um, has this uh, interesting um, fascination uh, with celebrity grief or types of death. So this mass shooting is one where where it affects us, even although we don't personally know anybody who was killed, perhaps, we find ourselves being uh, totally overwhelmed by this. And part of that is the trauma 
and a feeling of, of total helplessness, of control, uh, the simple horror of it. So what when I said earlier about the stories, let's think about the story of death around here. So for most of us, um, we hear what happened uh, in general terms. But what we do normally a human at a human level is that what we don't know for sure we create. So we imagine and imagination is a wonderful gift, but we start to imagine what was this like? What happened? How did it happen? What was it like when this took place? And I know that uh, I read a piece from the um, uh, CBC editorial who's uh, editor who's saying we're trying to be sensitive not to glorify this. So certain information is being shared, some of it's not, which I appreciate and is huge. But I also recognize that the normal natural piece for most of us is that we can we immediately find ourselves trying to imagine what happened. So I would I would say again that that that's where the traumatizing comes in, and I think what we have to stick with. Um, because that can lead us to a couple of problems. One, um, empathy. Hmm. Empathy is that ability to feel how another person is feeling. So our empathy can get stuck uh, with what happened around um, social justice, around justice, seeking justice. Uh, so that's we people get angry. They they start to 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 point out what's who's to blame. Um, why did this happen? And we've already seen that in the, in the news. Mm -hmm. So some people's empathy for what happened because they don't know what to do with it gets pushed into this anger. Um, and unfortunately, we see that in other places of that where it's been directed racially, social, economically, all kinds of things. So what I, I would encourage people is what do we know? We know this was a horrible, violent, inexcusable act. Um, it, it, we also know that this doesn't happen on a normal basis in Canada. Mm -hmm. This isn't something that happens every week. Um, so let's get it into perspective. That doesn't minimize it, what happened. I'm not trying to do that. But I am trying to say, let's, let's understand that. And let's, again, it's about what is my, what's my feeling? What am I feeling? Why am I feeling that? And and then I really think it's important for us to find a visible expression. So I can't do anything about it. I'm not going down there to work with people in grief. I can't help. What can I do? Well, you know what I can do? Uh, I can do what I did. I, I, I lit a candle and, and put it in the window and said, I'm thinking about them. Um, I'm doing something with my grief around what happened. That, that allows an expression for me. Mm -hmm. And and that's, you know, that's about what we need to, where we need to look and also be aware of what else it's triggering in us. Mm. That's excellent. So gain a healthy perspective, 
um, which means uh, not trying to dig too deep. Like you say, we, we struggle yep. with incomprehensible things. So yep. we, we make up things in our heads to, right. and to tell a story. This is where mythology came yep. from, you know, exactly. um, frightening things. We have to have a story behind it because we can't hold the mystery <clears throat> of we just don't <clears throat> know. So in a situation right. like this, there's a whole lot we don't understand. Be okay with that. Understand what we can be. So a healthy perspective, acknowledge our feelings. Yep. We recognize that it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us a little afraid. Once again, we grieve even just the sense mm-hmm. of freedom we had in Canada, you yep. know, um, but acknowledge those feelings and then find a visible expression. I love mm-hmm. that. That's easy. Mm-hmm. That's that's doable, <laughs> you yep. know, because this right. is what I was struggling with on the weekend as I was dealing right. with a whole bunch of stuff. And then this crisis happened and, I, and right. Um, I just jumped to the third point <laughs> because I was thinking <laughs> I've got to respond somehow because to not mm-hmm. respond, I, I look mm-hmm. at, I look at my feelings as, as energy, as these, um, mm-hmm. and if I just don't let it go anywhere, it just gets bottled up. And for me, yep. it just clouds my thinking. It just, I've got to find right. these, these ways of responding to things. And right. I love the, the three ideas you've given us cause there's a, a rhythm to it, um, but the, the final one about visible expression, finding a way to respond to it, even if it's, um, you know, calling someone you love, uh, writing mm-hmm. a letter, um, mm-hmm. doing something, not necessarily to talk about it, but responding to the feelings of it, mm-hmm. maybe. Absolutely. You know? But to not do anything, I think just it, once again, right. it just causes us to numb ourselves, right? which is just an unhealthy dam of feelings. Um, I think we just got to find a way of working through some of this stuff. And um, that's some good advice. Well, David, we've talked about a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wish you and me me were sitting across the table at Saigon Boys uh, having a vermicelli (laughs) bowl. I wish so too. (laughs) That that has got to be coming soon. It uh, will. I'm I'm hoping for it. I'm hoping for it. Listen, thinking about you, you've got a a tough job made even tougher because of these circumstances. But um, I'm so glad that you're the guy there on the ground loving and caring and helping people find their stories. So thank you for what you do. And um, thank you for having this chat today and uh, be well and we'll see you, uh, see you soon. Thank you, Aaron.